All right, so we're beginning a, a new book today. You'll, you'll see a little bit of an outline, not an outline, a timeline rather, in your bulletin today. It might help you to follow along when we get to some of those numbers. Uh, my daughter wanted to know why they are in the wrong order. Uh, BC works that way. It goes the other direction. Uh, counts down to, to the birth of Christ and then up again, right? Uh, so anyway, we are in the book of Nehemiah. The easiest way for you to find that, if you've got a, a Bible for you, go ahead and open up to the book of Psalms, which you should find somewhere smack dab in the middle of your Bible. Uh, and then go backwards. You'll go past Job, you'll go past Esther, and you'll find Nehemiah. Uh, hopefully that's how it works out for you. Uh, so, <clears throat> uh, Ryan and, and Nicholas Sear named their first child Ezra. She's giving me that look, like, where's this going? Um, and, and then when they had their second child, we, we had this perfectly unrealistic expectation that they would name their second child Nehemiah. Uh, they had a daughter. They did not. Um, They went with Evangeline instead. I still think Nehemiah would have been better. Uh, And Evangeline, great name, beautiful name, right? Uh, But I just want to know right now that we can all agree that if if they have a third child, and this is a boy, uh, that that we absolutely expect you to name him Nehemiah. Can you just agree to that now, right? No. Um, We'll see. Uh, Especially because, right, their their last name is Seer, C-Y-R, uh, and, and Cyrus, C-Y-R-U-S, was the, the king that God worked through to bring about the events which occur in these books, Ezra and Nehemiah. And, and y'all's last name being Seir, it, it's probably just short for Cyrus, I'm assuming. Um, so, I mean, anyway, um, those are my recommendations. If you want other baby names, let me know. I've got some good ones, Agabus. Um, <clears throat> so then, uh, our plan is, is to God willing over 20 Sundays, 20 Lord's Days, uh, to be in the book of Nehemiah. About half of those are going to come before the summer and the other half are going to come after it. And we're going to spend uh, what we usually do, right? The summer Psalms will be there. Eventually we will finish the Psalms. Uh, but that's, that's what we're working through. And, and, and today though, I, I do want to war, uh, warn you, yeah, warn you actually, right? That this is a nerdy history sermon today, right? There's going to be a lot of numbers and uh, names of people and things going through, uh, and and so you just know that ahead of time. Now, uh, we're going to read the first three verses as we get started here, so if you will, follow along, Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now, it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, uh, as I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. <clears throat> and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in, in the providence who has survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The, walls of, the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we begin this journey through the book of Nehemiah, we, we ask that you'd open our minds to understand these words, that, that we would learn and, and become what you desire for us to learn and become when you inspired and preserved this book for your people through all generations. And this we pray in, in Jesus' holy name. Amen. So right off the bat, there, there's some debate as to who the actual author of, of Nehemiah is. Jewish tradition says that it was Ezra. Uh, and then he wrote using Nehemiah's memoirs, right? Use his journal type things. Uh, and others will say that it's actually Nehemiah himself. Now, if you look at the first verses or words we see, right, they don't exactly clear it up for it. The, 
the words of Nehemiah. But who wrote that, right? Uh, you can see how both explanations would possibly work there. Although one puts Nehemiah in the third person, or yeah, speaking in the third person. Anyway, regardless, if we, if we remove another layer, these are the words of the Lord for his people. Anytime we come to Scripture, we want to remember that, right? And so here at the start, we, we want to know that. Now, Nehemiah is, to understand him, right, he is, he is like that person you know who has Italian ancestry and will tell you everything about Italy and yet has never set foot in Italy, never seen it, never been there, uh, that kind of situation. Nehemiah has lived his whole life uh, in Babylon and yet loved his homeland from afar and he loves the Lord and he loves the Lord's people. We, we're going to see that. Okay, that's what we're going to begin to see as we get through this. So, um, I spent one semester at school in East Texas, uh, a school not so creatively titled uh, East Texas Baptist University, uh, and on the southern edge of that campus ran these train tracks that would come through town, and, and one of the things the trains would do when they came through uh, right along the campus is they would slow down, and we always talked about what would happen if we just jumped on one of those trains, and so uh, the day came when this friend of mine, Josh Kohagen, and I uh, further proving, right, the stat you hear all the time, that people's brains are not formed until they're 25 years old. Uh, further proving that, we decided to jump on the back of the last car as it came by one day. Uh, and we learned real quickly that the moment these trains get out of town, they just take off at speeds you couldn't believe. And we're sitting on this tiny little platform uh, on the back of it. Uh, it. It was at about that time that we realized we don't know anything about this train. We don't know where it just came from. We don't know where it's going. We don't know when it's going to stop. We don't know anything about this train at all. And, and what we found out is it didn't actually slow down until it got to Shreveport, Louisiana, right, the next day over. <clears throat> and only enough that we could jump off this train while it was still moving. Uh, and then we, we hitchhiked our way back to campus. This is pre-cell phones. This is, it was your option, basically. Um, so anyway, there's no idea where it came from, no idea where it's going. Every time you and I open up to a new book of the Bible, we are doing something similar, or we can be if we're not doing the things that we need to do as we enter into them, right? We are, we are stepping into this particular time, we are stepping into this particular place, and there's a much wider context, particularly of the history of redemption going on there. And so in, in order to understand this book, I don't want us to just come at it and find it so far out of context. I, I want to begin this, right, at the very beginning today, spend a little time putting this into the wider context of Scripture. How did we get to this point? What is going on here so that it begins to make sense to you? And, and we'll begin all the way back in, in Genesis 12, although you could go further back, right? But where, where, where God makes this covenant with Abraham. And, and in this covenant, God has promised many blessings for his people, for, for Israel, many blessings. And, and so the question is, how then do we get to this point where we are in our passage here how do we get to this place where his, his people need restoration, um, where they are in desperately need like that? And, and we'll find out that in just a moment. Now, I, I'm going to give you a few dates here. Uh, like I said, they're B.C., before Christ. They're going in the opposite direction. It's not a typo. Um, and so you've got the, the 12 tribes of Israel, right? They are unified. It's one nation together. And this is true until the death of King Solomon in 930 B.C. Uh, at this time, the, the nation splits and you've got these ten northern tribes, then they get to hold on to the original name, we're Israel. Uh, and then you've got these two southern tribes uh, who were known as, as Judah. Now in 722 B.C., this is 208 years later, right after Solomon's death, uh, these nasty Assyrians, they wipe out the northern kingdom of Israel, decimate them. 
Now, about the same time that the southern kingdom, who's going by Judah now, uh, found themselves surrounded by these four very dangerous nations, surrounded by Egypt, uh, Assyria, who had just done some, just, you know, wiped out the northern kingdom, Babylon, and a place called Medea. Now, in 586 B.C., Jerusalem and the temple are destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is, is the king of Babylon. Uh, what he did was take the surviving Jews from all of that uh, and leads them back to Babylon into, into exile. They no longer live in Jerusalem. They are, they are there. They're not exactly slaves uh, like they were in Egypt, but they're not exactly free to go and do what they want all the time either. So you can look into that a little further. And, and anyway, the, the question arises, why, why did God allow this? Right? All these covenant blessings for his people. Here's what I'm going to do for you. Why did God allow this to happen? And here's the thing. Scripture teaches us that God didn't allow this to happen. Scripture teaches us that God caused this. That, that he caused it because in the terms of the covenant, there were blessings for obedience and there were curses for disobedience. Both Israel and Judah wholeheartedly broke the terms of, of the covenant. Let's, listen to what 2 Kings 17.7 says regarding the destruction of the northern kingdom. It says, And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God. Speaking of the southern kingdom, right, of Judah, 2 Chronicles 36.14 states, All the officers of the priests and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful, following all the ab abominations of the nations, and they polluted the house of the Lord that he had made holy in Jerusalem. I'll give you one more. First Chronicles 9.1 says, Judah was taken into exile in Babylon because of their breach of faith. That's the why. Now, now God would be perfectly justified to just leave it there, but God doesn't abandon his unfaithful people. He doesn't. In Jeremiah 33, God promises to forgive and to restore, to, to lead Judah back and to establish them in, in Jerusalem. And so this is what happens in history. In the year 539, I think this one's on your outline, um, King Cyrus of Persia, seer we might call him, uh, King Cyrus of Persia conquers Babylon, right? This is the place where the, where the Israelites are in exile. This is where they're being held captive, and, 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 and right? This is where they are, and, 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 and that's what happens. That's the way God works here. Now, now how many of you are familiar with a verse, Proverbs 21.1? Anyone off the top of your mind you haven't memorized? Okay, I'm going to read it to you. Many of you are probably going to recognize this. It says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Now, you, you've done that. Anytime you find something, right, you can, you can kind of reshape it, bathtub, wherever you find a faucet. That, that's the picture going on here. Well, well, the heart of King Cyrus is in the hands of the Lord, and God mercifully and, and sovereignly turns the king's heart to do something we would find odd in our context, to promote religious tolerance. Meaning the Jews, you can worship your God. That's fine. You see, Cyrus himself was polytheistic, right? He believed in, in many gods, and, and the more the merrier. And so he's thinking something along the lines of, you know what, I'm going to let these Jewish people worship their God, and, and maybe me doing so will, will, will get me some favor in the, in the eyes of their God as well. Because again, right, I, I want the, 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 the blessing of all the gods in the world. And that, that's his view, which is a completely messed up view theologically, and yet God's working through that. Now, it's interesting because only once in all of Scripture does God refer to a non-Jewish king as anointed. Isaiah 45.1 Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped 
to subdue nations before him. And so this brings us up to the point where we are in, in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. I know we're just doing Nehemiah, but you can't just do one fully, right? You've got to think of them together. Now, um, right, it brings us to this point. Now, now, to help you chronologically place, you know, biblical books, Daniel and Ezekiel, this is a time happening just before the events of Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, the, the prophets, some of the books so that we are, you, you can go look at and see that are happening at the same time. You've got Haggai and Zechariah and, and Malachi, right? These are all happening at the same time. Now, in the original Hebrew manuscripts, as, as well as the Greek translation called the Septuagint, Ezra and Nehemiah are treated like one book. Um, there's not a division. They're just, it just, remember these chapters and the verses were added at a much later date, and so they just treated them like one single book. Now, it's actually the easiest thing for us to think about, I, I think, for us to think through this, is to think of these two books together as one, one set, and, and then to think of that set as a, a trilogy, okay? And I'll explain here why. It's a, it's a trilogy. Now, it's kind of like the Lord of the Rings trilogy. It's it's unified story, but these different books. You've got uh, the Fellowship of the Ring and the Two Towers and uh, the Return of the King, at, right? And it's all one story, but three different sections. And and so if we think of it as a, tr- a trilogy, part one of the story is about this man named uh, Zerubbabel. Now, Zerubbabel's name means planted in Babylon, right? That's where he comes from. And, and yet, God uprooted him to lead the first small wave of exiles from Babylon back to Jerusalem. And, and their whole purpose in doing so is they want, to, they, they want to repair the altar. They want to restore the temple. They want to bring about temple worship for the people of God. And, and, and you might wonder, right, why is it just a small wave? Why don't all the Jews go back? You're free to go. Why, why don't they? And the reason is because really they had it pretty good in Babylon by this point. Many of them had financial success. And, and who wants to walk away from financial success, a, a prosperity, security? That's a difficult thing to walk away. And yet, in many ways, that tells us about, about where the hearts of the, many of the Jewish people are at this time. But where this priority in their life is regarding the worship of, of God, that they would rather stay than, than go. And, and, and so this first part of the trilogy... In, in terms of how we think through books of the Bible, consist of the, the first six chapters of the book of, of Ezra. That's where it would be. These first six chapters where Zerubbabel works against opposition to restore this temple worship for the, for the Lord. Um, now part one ends in 516 as the temple is dedicated and, and as they celebrate the Passover again finally in, in, in proper context. And, and, and while some of them looked at this temple and they were highly discouraged by the lack of splendor of this second temple. It's, it's not what, what it should be, what they expect it to be. And, and God graciously sends his prophet Haggai to, to encourage them. And, and Haggai says of the temple, he says, The later glory of, his house, of this house shall be greater than the formal. And while they couldn't have possibly known it at the time, this ultimately turns to be a statement about Christ, right? Who in John 2.19 compares his own body to the temple, compares it to being torn down and rebuilt in, in three days, and everyone's mad and thinks he's nuts. Why is he saying this, right? Now, of course, Jesus' body is resurrected, and thus the temple is rebuilt in three days, and this resurrected body of Christ is so far more glorious than, than even Solomon's temple. It is. It becomes a reality in Christ, like so many of these things we see. So then, back to our timeline. Uh, Fifteen years later, 
516 BC, King Cyrus dies, uh, and he is replaced by his son. And then his son later dies, and he's replaced by an officer named Darius. Uh, and then after him, you get Xerxes, who was the king who married Esther, right? We know this guy, uh, making her queen of Persia. And, and that happens in about 480 BC, if you just kind of want to place the book of Esther there. Um, and, and it's his son, King Artaxerxes, who is reigning at the start of the second part of this trilogy, uh, which is really the second half of the book of Ezra. Now, now, part two begins 60 years after that temple is dedicated. It's now 458 B.C., and, and there's this man, Ezra. That's the namesake. Ezra, he's a priest. He's also living in exile in Babylon, and he leads the second wave of, of Jewish exiles back to Jerusalem, and their purpose now, uh, their purpose is to rebuild the covenant community and, and to teach the Torah, Right to teach the law of God for Israel, which is found in the first five books of the Bible, Pentateuch, whatever you want to call it. Uh, in, in one sense, Ezra is this absolute Bible nerd who, who seeks to get people to take the Bible serious. That, that's kind of who he is. And, and, and it goes well, it goes real well, but it, but it ends oddly if you've ever read the book of, of Ezra, right? It, um, because Ezra learns that the Israelite men have married these, these non-Israelite, these foreign women, and, and made them wives, and which God had forbidden because Israel was supposed to stay distinct, was supposed to stay uh, holy, to, to be set apart from other nations and to be set apart from their gods and not to have that sort of union. And, and Ezra is just furious about this <clears throat> regarding these intermarriages. And, and he passes this divorce decree saying that men who marry these foreign wives uh, should divorce them, send them out, their wives or children, send them back to Babylon. It, it's particularly odd way for it to end because God doesn't tell Ezra to do this, right? That's, that's not the solution that God gives him. And, and because what, what God does say through, the, say through the prophet Malachi that he cares about the purity of his people, he seriously cares about the purity of his people, even in regards to their, their marriages and, and, and how they do so. God also says through Malachi, right, the same prophet that he hates divorce. And so I won't fix that problem for you this morning, in case you're wondering. Uh, the book of Ezra ends a little unsettling. Um, and, and this brings us to the third story of the trilogy, right? This is the, uh, uh, and this consists on the entirety of the book of Nehemiah. This is the part we're going to be spending these 20 weeks in. Uh, this occurs 13 years after the end of the book of Ezra, after all that stuff happened. This occurs while the Persian Empire is kind of at its heyday, right? Like the, the prime is kind of in this, this time period. And, and our story begins in the year 445, and it tells the history of this third wave of Jewish exiles who are led home to Jerusalem by a man named Nehemiah. And their goal is to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem that protect the temple, that protect God's people. And, and so while Ezra is this Bible nerd, Nehemiah is, is kind of this project manager nerd. I don't know why they all have to be nerds. Um, that's kind of how it is here. Now, now before we look at our, our short passage today, I, I do want to point out a few things. And the first one is this. Uh, even in exile, God's people trusted the Lord. They, they learned to honor the, the law of the land without compromising their faith. They respected their rulers, and we, we see so often how this led to them receiving positions of great prominence, even within the government. <clears throat> the way, uh, think back to Joseph in Egypt, right? 
Think about Daniel in, in Babylon before this. Think about uh, even Nehemiah here, right? He also found himself in this unique position as a, a cupbearer for, 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 for King Artaxerxes. Uh, we're going to learn more about that, what that means, and, and the significance of that in, in two weeks. For, for now, just notice he's working for the Persian government, and he's not scheming against the king. He's not trying to kill the king. He's not trying to overthrow the government. And, and, and while we're going to see all sorts of conflict in this book of Nehemiah, um, that's going to be worked through, right? We're, we're going to see them seeking to obey, ultimately, their, their governing authorities. Not, not instead of the Lord, but uh, we'll see how that works out. And, and this raises this question, though, for us, right? We, we see that. That's the way they're reacting in exile. Why do they do that? Why are they so willing to do that? And the answer is because they truly believe, they, they actually know that God has sovereignly placed them under this Persian control at this time. We will also see these people of God gathered together for encouragement, for, for strength with each other, right? They're, they're going to learn how to, how to persevere as, as they trust God's sovereignty over everything, even the situation that they find themselves in this moment. You see, if, if, if we're honest in our, our thinking, right, that trusting God is incredibly easy as long as everything in your life is going pretty well, but as soon as things get difficult in your life, with your job, your, your situation, your family, your health, your finances, whatever it is, <clears throat> what we really think about God and his power, in, in that moment it is put to the test, right, when nothing is going our way. And if we're still being honest, too often, our first turn is anywhere besides God's means of grace. Right? And instead of soaking in the scriptures, we soak in the news. Instead of prayer to God, we, we complain to others. Instead of gathering near to our covenant community, we isolate ourselves away from that. Listen, if you are a child of God through faith in Christ, you can trust that God is at work in and through your present situation for his glory and your good. No matter what it is. In other words, let's, let's not just know Romans 8.28, right? Let, let us live out, let this actually soak into our life and be lived out in the way we, we, we do this, right? Romans 8.28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And so many of us know that. But are we living that? Do we really know that? Now, let's take a quick look at these first three verses. Um, I don't know why. There's nothing in my ear. Um, we, we're, we're, we're here introduced to Nehemiah, whose, whose name means Yahweh has comforted, right? This, this is his role. Um, that's who he is. It's, it's the months of Chislev. I don't even know if that's pronounced right. It's the equivalent to November, December-ish in there, which tells you this is, this is kind of a, a winter time period, right? He is in Susa. That, that's where Nehemiah is when this starts, which is uh, not surprising. That's the king's winter home, and he works for the king. Uh, the, the king, like anyone would, spent his summers down by the ocean in Ekbatana. Now, Susa today is, is known as a town, Shush, S-H-U-S-H. It's located in Iran. Uh, you might remember Susa as the city, which we've kind of already mentioned, right, where Esther is made the queen of Persia. That's, that's where Nehemiah is at this point. And what happens is this group of traveling men visit Susa. We don't know who they are, why they're there. Uh, and one of them is Nehemiah's brother, Hanani. Now, 
Nehemiah has clearly been wondering how these fellow Jews in his homeland are doing, what's going on. Maybe he has no idea, but, but he asks, right? And, and he learns that the walls are broken down and that the gates are destroyed by fire. And, and here's the thing. It is absolutely possible that, that these gates and these walls have been broken down ever since the Babylonian invasion, 140 years in the past. Uh, but Nehemiah's reaction really, really leads us to believe that this news has to be more recent than that. Right? Like if, like if I asked you today, or let's say you asked me, hey, Brian, how are the people in Hawaii doing? And I'm like, you know, not good. Japan dropped a bomb on, on Pearl Harbor. Right? If that's our conversation today, 80 years after those events, you're, you're not really moved to do anything about that. Really? Like a bomb? You know, this is, this is not new news. You wouldn't be shocked by it. You're not leading a group. Let's go rebuild Pearl Harbor. That, that's not the kind of response you'd have. Um, but this news concerns Nehemiah, right? It, because not having the walls and the gates is a threat to the safety of the Jews who, who reside there. And this probably is something far more recent that, that has happened. Maybe the, the gates have been built in some regard previously. Uh, now, did you notice that when he's, when he's speaking, when, uh, you know, when the men speaking to Nehemiah summarize the condition of the remnant living in Jerusalem, right? They, they do it in an interesting way. Look at verse 3. Uh, they are talking about the people, the Jew, Jewish people in, in, in Jerusalem. Uh, they're in great trouble and shame. And we read great trouble easily, right? That makes sense. They have no walls. They have no gates. They are in great trouble. But why the word shame here? See, in our current culture, shame has become a, a word of, of taboo. And, and, and at times, for good reasons, right? Because of the context in which it's used. For, for far too long, shame has been this, this weapon that has been wielded against people. Um, as I, when I was a child, I, I wet the bed. I feel like I'm in Bedwetters Anonymous. Hi, I'm Brian. I wet the bed. Um, but I did it for like a long time. I, I'm talking fifth grade, maybe some in sixth grade, uh, way too long. Uh, you can imagine how frustrating this was for my parents. And it's, it's not because I was drinking water and, and, you know, didn't care. It's not because I'm so lazy that, that, you know, I just didn't get up. It's not like I wanted to wake up in my own pee in the middle of the night. Um, now, at the time, my parents had no understanding of this, no understanding on why this is going on. They were frustrated, completely understandable. Uh, but what happened in their frustration is they piled a great deal of shame on me. And I did feel ashamed. And I didn't fix it, right? Because that wasn't the problem. In our culture, we, we shame people for so many things that we shouldn't, and, and that's not good. But to feel shame for sin, that's not bad. That is actually a good thing. It, it, guilt would be a better word probably, right? If, if you lie about someone and, and the truth comes out, you should feel shame. You should feel guilt for that sinful behavior, right? That's, that's the proper response. Now, a genuine sense of shame reveals to us our, our sinful nature and, and thus our need for Jesus. So it can be a good thing. So I'll, I'll tell you right here, though, that, that shame is, is not the theme of the book of Nehemiah. Right? Something that's repeated over and over. We're not going to see this again. And yet, here at the very beginning in these opening verses, uh, the experience of shame felt by a remnant of Jewish exiles uh, is this first spark. It's this catalyst for the restoration God has in plan for his people. These Jerusalem Jews are in shame because of their circumstance. Because they've not secured and protected this city, and, and really that's been their whole goal there. 
right? I mean, here we are in the city, and it's not what we thought it would be. They, things are not going well here, and so they feel shame. They, they, they feel just like any of us when, we, when our experience is failure or perceived failure of some sort, whether that be academic failure or, or being let go from a, a job or, or not having the, the healthy lifestyle that you, you really sought to live, right? Or maybe it's shame for our bodies being too fat or too skinny or too short or too whatever it might be. Or, or maybe life is just not what you expected it to be by this point. These weren't the dreams you, you, you sought after, right? And the, the shame of these people and Nehemiah's response here tells us something about who this man Nehemiah is. It tells us that he does care about the glory of God, and it tells us that he is a compassionate man. The Lord has stirred Nehemiah's heart to do something for these people, for the Lord, to do something for this covenant community, despite the fact he doesn't even really know them. He didn't grow up with them. Now, my my hope for us as a community is that we become compassionate people. My, my, my close friend, he's a fellow PCA pastor out in California, uh, Brad Mills, he said this. He said, compassion is not an exam question you get right or wrong. It involves a heart check. You either feel or you don't. It has less to do with expertise and accuracy and more to do with inquiry and sympathy. It includes putting the needs of others above your own. That's what we see in this, this man, Nehemiah. He cares about people. Did you notice, right, the, the initiative even is, is Nehemiah's? It's not that they come in and are like, let me tell you what's going on in Jerusalem. He asks. He wants to know. Tell me what's going on to our, our people. It's what drives him to leave this comfortable position, right? We make jokes about cupbearer, but it's a really high position. You'll see, right? It's significant. Now, rebuilding starts by caring about brokenness. And this is as true with people as it is about walls and gates. And, and we're going to learn as we, we go that Nehemiah is a loyal, trustworthy servant, both as a cupbearer to the king and, and as a servant to the king of glory. We'll, we'll learn that as a gifted, what a gifted administrator he is, right? If you're administratively minded, you're probably going to be really impressed with Nehemiah. If you're not, you won't care. Um, and, but just think about this, like administration, that's, that's not something we think of when we think of like service to the Lord. Administration. And yet, here's what we're seeing here. Um, we're going to see that Nehemiah is filled, filled with a zeal for God, for God's purposes, for the good of God's people. We're going to see in this wonderful book how, how God's people come together and they work together for the purposes of the Lord. May, may that become a, a great longing and reality for us as a covenant community that we come together for the, the purposes of the Lord. The Great Commission, right? A um, couple of more things and then, and then we'll close. First, I, I want you to cement in your mind today that everything that is said in 2 Timothy 3.16 about God's word is true of this book that we are, we are coming into here. The words of, of Nehemiah, the book, are breathed out by God and these words in Nehemiah are profitable for your teaching, for reproving you, for correcting you, for training you in righteousness. Nehemiah will help us as men and women of God to be complete. These words will equip us for every good work. Second thing I want you to notice here is, well, um, you'll know I'm from Texas because I tell you all the time, just like all people from Texas do, but I, I wasn't actually alive when Texas was established on March, March 2nd, 1836. 
but as a, a Texan, in, in some way, that story has become my story just by association. Those people are my people. Well, in a far more important and God-established and ordained way, a real way, right? This, this story of, of God's people under the leadership of Nehemiah is not just some old story in the Bible. This is your story. It's my story. It's our story. These are our people, right? Truly. Uh, Kathleen Nielsen says... Most of us probably do not share the privilege of being Jewish or part of Abraham's physical seed. We, we could not list our names in the genealogies that continue down through the generations. But if we have become part of God's people, this is our story. Galatians 3, 7 and 8 declares, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. You whose faith is in Christ, you are sons of Abraham. This is your lineage. These are your people. In eternity, you'll actually know these people. Truly. It's weird to think about, but it's real, right? Uh, and, and finally, the, the God of these Israelites is our God too. This is the same God that, that you and I pray to every day. So let us learn from, from these people, right? Let us learn about from their repentance. Let us, repentance. Let us learn um, from their faithfulness, their return to faithfulness. Let us learn to trust God like they trust God. Let us learn to care about the purposes of God like we see them. So we'll stop there. I, I do ask you to do this. As we work through this Bible, or this book, read what we're going to do ahead of time. Sometime during this week, read through it. The not long sections. Come in here with some, some curiosity because you've been reading it or wondering, what does this mean? What's this about? How does this, you know, come in with that. So, so we're going to finish up chapter 1. Next week, so that's the part you'll you'll want to read. Um, let's let's close. Lord God Almighty, we ask that you would give us this quality that we cannot create within ourselves. We we ask that you would give us compassionate hearts. Teach us to care about your glory. To care about our, our fellow Christians who may live in, in faraway lands or across the street or across this room who who may be different from us in a lot of ways, but who are precious to you and whom you have redeemed with the blood of Christ just like you have redeemed us. Father, teach us to, to care about the lost, those who need Christ. Make us compassionate for your glory, for the sake of the gospel. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.